Welcome to Viva La Volva, the podcast that explores and teaches about the goodness of the vulva. Here is your host, Dr. Kara Quant, an internal medicine doctor and advocate for female sexual health. Hello, and welcome to the Viva La Volva podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kara Quant, and I'd like to thank you for joining me today. Today is a special day, and I am joined by Dr. Michael Kreikman, and we are going to be talking all about vaginal dilators and pelvic pain. Give me a little bit of background about how we met. We actually met in 2018. He was actually a part of my first Viva La Vulva exhibit in downtown Los Angeles, and um, he was joined by a sex therapist a family medicine doctor, and we had a great conversation around women's sexual health and still getting a lot of information. People are asking about, you know, when's the next Viva La Vulva event? Uh, And it will be soon in March of this year. So look out for more details about that. But thank you, Dr. for coming on to the podcast today. Thanks, Kara. It's great and wonderful to see you again. And really, that exhibit resonated for so long. And we're I'm super excited that you're going to be having another one in 2023 in March. So uh, can't wait to get that date on the calendar. You know, a little background about me. I am a sexual medicine gynecologist. I'm also an ASEX certified sexual counselor. My clinical work at the University of California, Irvine, where I run the high-risk breast ovarian center. So we do a lot of cancer survivorship. We do sexual pain issues. We see patients who are recovering from cancer treatments that have a lot of pelvic pain issues. And we try to integrate not only the medical aspects of what's going on physically with anatomy, veins, arteries, nerves, but also look at the mental health aspects of the, you know, the stress and the chronic pain issues, the underlying mood issues. So uh, really excited to be here. You know, when I do mental health only and counseling, I'm going to be launching that in February of 2023 with a new organization, HerMD. Very excited. They're launching HerMD California, which will be um, mental health counseling for all sexual health complaints, menopausal issues as well, and gynecology. So, you know, the issues related to sexuality, sexual health concerns run the gamut. If you are in menopause, you may have vaginal dryness, which leads to painful intercourse. If you have fibroids or endometriosis, you may also be a young woman who's experiencing chronic pain as well that may impact your intimate relationships. So very excited to have that opportunity to work with uh, HerMD to do counseling only, which will be virtual, as well as, you know, do the gynecological and in-person assessments at the university. So really excited to dive into this uh, really amazing topic today. Nice. And just a quick question about the HerMD. Is it going to be a set of doctors? Is it going to be mainly you? What is the... So right now they're only launching in they're only launching in California for the mental health services and it'll be me only so I'm really excited to uh, take the lead in this so we'll be providing mental health services for Californians and because it's virtual I'm really excited because you know a lot of women don't have access and that's the big issue for a lot of these issues as it pertains to sexual function. There are a lot of women who are not in major metropolitan 
uh, you know, major cities that don't have access to a gynecologist and don't have the information. So we're going to be launching in California, but the plan is to go to all their other centers. So they're a national brand, very exciting. They're opening up a lot of centers. So they'll have mental health services as the centers open. So very excited to uh, be a part of that new adventure. Yeah, that sounds exciting. So let us dive into vaginal dilators and pelvic pain. I was looking at a statistic and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, 10 to 28%, which is a really wide range, but 10 to 28% of women experience pelvic pain some time in their life. So I wanted to have a conversation about things that can help with pelvic pain. We'll dive into the reasons why women have pelvic pain in the first place, and then talk a little bit about, or a lot of bit about vaginal dilators. That is the episode today. I guess the first question I have is, what are the causes of pelvic pain? And is that percentage correct? Well, you know, I think it depends on what source you read. I mean, to me, it sounds very low, right? Even 28% sounds low. If you look at it, you know, menopausal women, a woman who is not having her cycle, she's over 51, she will experience a loss of estrogen. Over 50% of those women will have vaginal dryness with associated pain. And many of them, I mean, I've done some of the literature on that, many of them continue to engage in sexual intimacy in spite of the fact that it's severely painful. So again, we recognize, you know, the percentage is exceptional. I mean, if you look at women who have endometriosis or implants of the lining of the uterus at other places, they also can experience chronic pelvic pain, periodic pain that comes with cycles. Women who have fibroids, you know, estimated, you know, 40 to 60% of women have fibroids. Many of them are asymptomatic, but many women just kind of minimize the pain. So if you're looking at the gamut, I mean, I think it affects so many women at so many times in their life cycle. Let's not forget the iatrogenic or the things that cause this. There's over 300 medications that we prescribe regularly that can cause vaginal dryness, can cause pain with intercourse as well. One culprit for some women is oral contraceptives. And we know that there's over 300 million, that's a huge number, 300 million prescriptions worldwide of birth control pills that may be impactful. Now, again, some women sail through life on oral contraceptives and there's no issues. Other women may be suffering from pelvic pain syndrome. So again, the gamut really runs the life cycle. So you have women who are experiencing dysfunctional uterine bleeding. They may be emerging into their cycle and it's without regularity. You may have pain during lactation, right? When you are breastfeeding, your hormones are declined. The vagina is very dry. When you're sexually active, you may have pain. You have those endometriosis, you have fibroids, you have adenomyosis, and then you have medication-induced as well. You may also have pain issues from an infection, a chronic infection that you can't get rid of. So again, the differential is endless. But I think the thing to remember is that very often, if you are, I would say, a gynecological detective and you can kind of discern the etiology, some of these have very good treatments, whether they're medical whether they're psychological or very often in my case, what I like to advocate is a combined approach, including the medical evaluation 
as well as psychological coping with stress and fatigue, right? And again, I think the most important thing to remember as we talk about some of these conditions is it's the context in which things happen, right? So you could be running a huge marathon and you can be exhausted and your legs can be in pain, but you're really exhilarated, right? But if you take that same kind of pain and you put it in a uterus every single month, you are dejected, you are depressed, you are fatigued. So again, I think the emotional context in which pain happens is really, really important to evaluate and assess as well. Hmm. And would you say that in your practice, you are doing more assessments uh, psychologically rather than like physical, you know, problems associated with pain? I mean, I guess I would think, well, you probably do both, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I do both. But I think for me, because I'm a tertiary referral, right? And it's not very common to have someone who is an MD plus an ASEC certified sexual counselor I think people just take it for granted that I'm going to ask those questions of how they're adapting to it. You know, we looked at some of the data, the average person who comes to see me has seen three to five clinicians before and where they've gotten, you know, dismissed, they've gotten, you know, the label as a chronic complainer. So again, I think it's the context in which somebody is presenting. I think you cannot and you should not evaluate somebody purely on a medical basis. You you certainly need to know what's going on with the tissues and you need to know if there's an anatomical or endocrine issue. You need to know if there's fibroids, endometriosis, adenomyosis, if they're taking offending medications. But you also have to integrate that with how is this affecting the couple? How is it affecting the intimacy? How is it affecting their stress level, their ability to cope with activities of daily living. So again, I think when you're talking about pain, it's an integrated approach. And very often there is acute pain and chronic pain. And many women who come see me, they've been dismissed. They've been misdiagnosed and they've been dismissed. So it's almost a luxury when they come in and somebody is really asking them questions about depression, anxiety, fear, and what have you, as well as focusing on the downstream issues, right? If you have chronic pain, it could be very impactful on your relationship, on your marriage. So again, I think it's an integrated approach and it's not only one facet. I think you need to look at both of those in tandem and combined. Hmm. And going along that, actually what popped up in my head is, you know, the time it takes to ask these questions and to give more information and to ask about depression and anxiety and, and marital problems. Do you find that there is like a like a specific question or a set of questions that a primary care doctor can ask to get more information from this woman? Or yeah, just like a common question that is not asked from the second and first person that this patient has seen. Right. I think the first issue is how can someone do this? Because it's, as you said, it might take a long time. So Again, I think it's really important to to recognize you don't have to cover everything in one quick visit, right? I think the most important issue is to ask, first and foremost. Most people are dismissive and they don't ask. And also, you know, the average clinician will interrupt within the first 11 seconds when a patient speaks. So, you know, I have a good friend of mine, Barb Dean, she says, you have two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you speak. (laughs) And I think a lot of clinicians need to take that advice, right? 
And it could be general questions. I think those are very, very important. And then effectively use silence, right? Can you tell me about your last sexual experience? And then let the patient free flow and then ask more detailed. Or if you have a suspicion, tell me about your pain that you're experiencing. One simple question plus coupled with silence can tell you a huge amount of information of where to go. And it's okay to refer. Uh, Referral is not a failure. And it's okay to divide it up into several visits, right? It's okay to say, you know, I recognize that we're here for your annual exam or your blood pressure check or to check your diabetes. However, you mentioned you know, you have frequent yeast infections and they're causing some discomfort, let's go ahead and schedule a specific visit for that specific issue. Or let me give you this person's name and number who specializes in pain syndromes as it relates to chronic conditions. So it's okay to not do the comprehensive evaluation in one sitting, but it's not okay not to ask. And I think a lot of clinicians are fearful of asking because they feel it's that Pandora's box. So I think it's really important like, just to ask and listen is the most important, uh, I think, piece of advice I can offer. Okay. So let us get more into the specific details about vaginal dilators. What are the benefits of vaginal dilators for pelvic pain? Because there are so many, you said 300, over 300 different reasons for pelvic pain. Right. And many of those are medicine. So what are the benefits of having uh, introducing a vaginal dilator? So vaginal dilators are really inserts you put into the vagina to get acclimated, right? So very often what we see is there's this disconnect between brain and body. What that means is when you experience pelvic pain, the whole genital pelvic region really is a source of discomfort and also anxiety. And you might have reflex tightening of the muscles, you might have reflex, you know, in anticipation, I always equivalent and and talk about, you know, when you're riding a bike, and you fear that you're going to fall off your muscles are, are already tense, to begin with. So there may be some issues where your brain is superseding and your brain and your body are kind of your body is saying, you know, your brain is saying, look, the vaginal area is painful, it's uncomfortable, I don't want to have intercourse, the muscles are going to be tight, it's going to hurt. So there's this brain body disconnect. When you do vaginal dilators by yourself, you're really relearning that the vagina is not angry, it's not painful, it is a potential space where you could have intercourse or something inserted into the vagina. So vaginal dilators, you know, we know a lot about them, but we also don't know a lot about them. They're made up of a variety of different materials, anything from glass to latex to hard plastic and what have you. They come in all different sizes, which means the diameter or how large the dilator will come in will be constructed is also in a variety of different diameters. So again, women that have severe anxiety about penetration, they might want to use something very, very narrow, something equivalent to the diameter of a pencil or even the equivalent of a q-tip or what have you but again they progressively get larger there's dilators that are automatic there's ones that you can press they're electronic they're a button they increase by one millimeter at a time rather than stepwise so again uh, variety of materials 
variety of sizes. But again, I think the bottom line is that dilators are used to help reconnect the brain and body. When you have pelvic pain or you're suffering from dryness with discomfort during intercourse, your body is reacting almost by reflex and saying, this is uncomfortable and I don't want to put myself into a negative situation and your brain supersedes and is kind of disconnected. When you're doing dilator exercises by yourself, whether it's when you're, and again, we'll get into this a little bit more, when you're doing the dilators, you are relaxing, you're going at your own speed, you're listening to cues from your body, you're staying mindful in the situation, you're making sure you have a lot of lubrication as well, and that the tissues are healthy, and you're kind of getting acclimated to understand that the vagina doesn't have to always be angry and discomforting and un, you know unpleasant and what have you. Okay. What is like the first thing, if someone doesn't have vaginal dilators, they have pelvic pain, should they see somebody first? Should they try and purchase them and, you know, see how it goes? What is your advice to that? So I think, you know, your point is very well taken. I think they do need a medical evaluation. I think because there's so many reasons why somebody can have pelvic pain You know, somebody who has a chronic yeast infection, they may need medications in addition to the dilators. So again, I don't want to minimize the importance of a comprehensive medical and pelvic evaluation. I think that's really important to find the underlying cause. Sometimes people have massively huge fibroids or they have endometriosis, which may need other specific medications to treat it in addition to dilators. So dilators are one part of what I would call precision medicine therapeutic treatment paradigm. So when you are getting an evaluation for pelvic pain, you may need pelvic floor physical therapy. You may need other medications besides the dilators. You may need a change of a medication that's offensive or causing more harm than good. You may need hormones. You may need a whole variety of other treatments in addition to dilators. So dilators in and of itself is not a cure-all. It's part of a comprehensive program. So again, I think getting a proper evaluation and assessment, certainly very important. And dilators may be a part of that treatment at various points of that treatment paradigm, right? So again, I'd hate to recommend somebody buy dilators when they need an evaluation and a medication and dilators would be helpful in three months, right? So again, I think the best course is to get that evaluation and assessment and then see what the comprehensive treatment paradigm is and when would be the best time. And again, I'll just say the caveat, some women will be readily available to the suggestion of dilators when they come in at their initial visit. And then they want everything done immediately, right? Let's do the moisturizer, let's do the lubricant, (laughs) let's do the dilators, let's do the counseling. I wanna get fixed really quickly, whatever. (laughs) Other women like to tiptoe into treatment, right? And they say, okay, look, let's just enhance the vaginal health at the current time. And when I come back in four weeks, let's discuss this. So again, that's the whole concept of tailoring the treatment to the individual and listening to what's acceptable. Because the predictors of success with dilators are really frequent visits. Sometimes if we don't give enough education, If we don't give enough support, they'll buy the dilators, but they won't use them and they won't get better. And then then we're behind the eight ball because once they've tried and failed, 
they never want to use them again. Okay. So just like, I mean, I, you know, I, I do understand that concept. I think that I've, you know, heard from patients about Kegels, you know, Kegels being the end all be all. If I do some Kegel exercises, that's going to maintain my vaginal health and that's going to help with strengthening my pelvic floor. But Kegels are not always the, you know, the end all be all, just like vaginal dilators are not. It's, it's a tailored therapy. It's incorporated into treating pelvic pain, but it's not the only solution. Right. Yeah. Okay. Say a patient has gone to, say, a physical therapist or pelvic floor physical therapist or an OBGYN provider, and they are recommending to use a vaginal dilator. Can you give us some steps or like how to's of using the vaginal dilator? Or is it everyone is, a? I guess everyone's a little different in terms of the size of the vaginal dilator, but is there like an overall, you know, list of how to for using a vaginal dilator? I think the important thing is to get to know the vaginal dilator in a non-threatening situation, like look at it, read the instructions, wash them, clean them, look at the size. I typically tell women to start with the smallest size. And again, there's no really hardcore data to support the fact that, you know, four times a week is better than five times a week is better than three times a week. There's no data to support 12 minutes is better than 10 minutes. I tend to overprescribe because people under deliver. So I want people to use the dilators like three or four times a week, 10 to 15 minutes. It's my opinion and uh, really based on expert opinion for those in the field that if you're telling women to use dilators very, very often, like every single day, they get burnout, right? And they're not going to use it. I did do some research on the time of the day. We thought, I thought that, you know, early morning would be better, you know, to do the dilators before a woman started her day rather than at night when the day is done. You know, we'd like to think that you know, households are liberated, but, you know, women are still the cookers, the cleaners, the homework checkers, the monitor of, you know, social media, they work in the home, out of the home. So a lot of responsibilities. And we found that it really has to be tailored. Some women prefer doing dilators in the morning and they say, oh yeah, I can do it and then jump in the shower and start my day. Other women say like, it's much easier when I'm not stressed out and I'm at the end of the day and I can do it. You want to do dilators probably around four to five times a week, 10 to 15 minutes, no longer in a safe private room without interruption. So very often I'm writing on a prescription pad, get a lock for your master bedroom door uh, (laughs) when you are going to be uninterrupted and you're not, because you don't want any situation when it's going to create more anxiety, right? When the kids are going to walk in or you have something else to do or what have you. And again, you want some people like distracting activities. We did, I did one study that showed that women like relaxation therapy, relaxation music as well. Sometimes aromatherapy, sometimes mood lighting, where you can be in a quiet, comfortable, relaxed setting. Some women like to read, some women watch TV. And again, um, it really depends on the woman. But you want to incorporate some distracting activities and really insert the vaginal dilator and make sure that the vaginal health has been revived and restored and replenished with either local hormones or moisturizers, use lots of lubricant. And again, you insert the dilator as well. Okay. And so after you insert the dilator, it just sits 
and kind of allows for its kind of gravity to relax the muscles. Well, usually women are lying down, you know, or sometimes they are in the shower or what have you, depending on the dilator or they're standing up. You So you want to insert the dilator. And, you know, I my personal treatment paradigm is you insert the dilator and then you could have motion with the dilator. You move it in and out of the vaginal area. And, and some advocate removing the dilator completely and then reinserting it as well. So really putting it in at rest, then movement, and then remove and reinsert. And again, that's individualized. And again, it depends on the patient. I usually tell patients to do that with one size for at least one month three times a week before they consider moving to the next size up. Okay. Slow yeah. and steady progress. Okay. Um, and we actually had a conversation before this to prepare and you were talking about vaginal dilators and music. How are companies now incorporating music into the, the mix? Well, there are a whole variety. I mean, I think, you know, when I did my study in my office, we used, a different type of self-stimulator, which actually vibrates to the sound of the music. So again, you want to use the concept of music therapy now with, you know, everything on the internet and Wi-Fi, you can play music from your phone as you're listening, relaxation music. And we did actually three arms. We did those that did dilators alone, those that just did dilators and music therapy, and those that just did music therapy without dilators and see a return and lower to pain. And we actually show that dilators and music therapy, where the music was something that the individual thought was calming and soothing, right? Those actually improved much quicker than the other two arms as well. Hmm. Okay. So you're not talking about just listening to music as you're uh, using the vaginal dilator. You're talking about the vaginal dilator hooked up to the music. And well, yeah, that, that's one kind. That's one kind. But I really advocate just listening to the music as well. I think that that's hmm. very helpful. I'm a huge advocate of, you know, complementary and alternative therapies. I think music therapy does work. We do have some data on premature infants in the neonatal unit. They are listening to soothing music. It lowers blood pressure. I mean, everybody would agree, right? When you are completely stressed out and you're listening to very relaxing music and listening to or smelling a candle that is soothing and relaxing, it's almost as if those have therapeutic effects. So again, I'm a huge advocate for choosing something that helps you relax. And that's really individualized. Mm, okay. Okay. I like that. And then what are some potential side effects? So, I mean, you know, it sounds like vaginal dilators are great and that they can help with uh, a lot of conditions, but are there potential side effects? Are there bad effects of using a vaginal dilator? Well, I think, you know, if they're not overused, so some women have gotten over aggressive with dilators and there can be irritation, there can be, you know, or they premature use the dilator when they are recovering from cancer and they might have some spotting or they haven't revived and restored and replenished the tissue and the tissue is super dry, they can have irritation. Very rare, but they do happen. The biggest issue with dilators is non-compliance. So people get overzealous and then they stop. 
And then the other thing that I've also seen is over-medicalizing vaginal dilators. So again, remember, dilators are vaginal inserts that are reconnecting your brain and your body. And ultimately, the goal for many women who use dilators is to engage in sexual intercourse, right? So, you know, I always say the last place you want your healthcare provider is to be there when you're using your dilators and say, oh, stop, I have to think about what Dr. Krishman is mentioning to me. No. So you want to medicalize it. So they're doing it as part of the therapeutic. And then what I would say is you demedicalize it. You involve the partner. Maybe the partner is using the dilators with the first it's by themselves, then it's with the partner. And it's really a prelude or part of the sexual arousal experience. So some women are only using the dilators alone, and then they have that problem when they want to bridge it with their partner. So again, I think it's really important to allow that bridging to happen. Mm. Which might also help with the anxiety of it, right? right. Like with yeah. having a partner in the room and having them relaxed. And yeah, so I feel like that would that would help with the... Yeah, therapy. and very often we say to incorporate as part of the sexual foreplay as well. And that gives them the confidence and they say, yes, I can have something in the vagina and I'm not uncomfortable and it's not painful. And the dilator is the same size as the partner. So I'm not worried that it's going to hurt and what have you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything else that you would like to add about uh, vaginal dilators that I didn't cover? I think the most important thing, Kara, is that if you are suffering, you're not alone. And if you have chronic pain, no matter what the condition, there are therapeutic interventions that we can do, both medical and psychological, whether it's a medical evaluation and treatment or counseling that can help. As we talked earlier, it's so prevalent and so many women are really suffering in silence. And now with a lot of the issues related to telehealth, related to virtual visits, I think that we really need to allow access for women and women shouldn't be suffering in silence, that there's a lot of things that we can and should be doing to help them on the road to recovery. Yes. And so if you can provide us with some of those resources, so say they're not in the, you know, in the Newport Beach area in order to see you, how can people who are having pelvic pain and they do want to have a solution, where can they go to find a provider? Well, I think, you know, the first issue, if they have a local gynecologist, they should be seeking care there. And you can find a provider at the American College of OBGYN. You can also see at your family physician. If you are in the state of California, uh, I would visit hermd.com for virtual services those will be up and running in February of 2023. And again, I think that there are a lot of resources. The American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists is also another place where you can find a counselor if you want somebody in person in your local area as well. And I would encourage people to ask questions, ask questions of their providers, ask for referrals, and really get the help that they need. Yes, I agree. And I actually had a, a podcast episode maybe a year ago talking about, you know, how to advocate for yourself at the doctor's office. And I feel like that, you know, pelvic pain, the sexual health problems, that's such a, you know, big 
I would say that was one of the reasons why I did the episode was for right. people to advocate for themselves, for what they want, for what they are suffering with, uh, because you don't have to suffer in silence. Right. True. I mean, I think yes. it's important. It's so true. Yes. And how can people stay in contact with you? I think the best way, I mean, I'm at the University of California, Irvine. So that's available online. You just uh, Google <laughs> University uh, UCI Medical Center. And I have three centers in Southern California. Or again, for mental health services, I would suggest visit herabd.com. And uh, it's pretty straightforward on the website how to get in touch if you were interested in a counseling session. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having this important conversation about pelvic pain and vaginal dilators. I hope everyone out there got some information, um, resources that they're able to use to help themselves. And yeah, but thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and keep me posted with what's going on. Uh, love to come back and talk about some other specific issues and uh, can't wait to hear about uh, the next exhibit. Yes. Well, March 2023. But yeah, I will give you more information. I'll email you. And then I will also listeners give you more information probably in the podcast episode. But thank you for joining us today on the Viva La Vulva podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and let friends and family know about it. Take care. Bye.